Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organization defending women's sexual rights against threats posed by gender identity ideology. There is more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our declaration on women's sex based rights, which has been signed by over 31,000 people from 159 countries, and it is supported by 439 organizations. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts in different countries, engaged in defending women's rights. And this week, we, we will have Melissa Farley from USA. She's going to um, have a talk titled Sexism, Gender Identity and Prostitution, Trans Advocacy and Sex Work Advocacy are Political Movements Rooted in Sexual Objectification. She will um, tell us about those links, uh, the links between those two movements. We will have later on T from Lesbians United from the USA as well, uh, with a talk titled Playing Offense with Pro-Lesbian Language. Lesbians United recently released, released a messaging guide that equips women and gay rights activists to fight back against sexism, sexism and homophobia more effectively using a positive, proactive messaging strategy. This talk will give a rationale for why women's rights activists should change their linguistic strategy and explain how to go on the offense with more positive, proactive messaging. Without further ado, we are going to be hearing from Melissa Farley, a feminist research and clinical psychologist who founded Prostitution Research and Education in 1985. She and the organization and their many partners are celebrating their 15th peer-reviewed publication on prostitution, trafficking, and pornography. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you very much for being here with us and over to you. I wanna say, that without the existence of Women's Declaration International and these Zoom seminars, I would not have been able to put these ideas together. Listening to the women on this uh, webinar, series of webinars, and feeling the courage of sisters from all over the world that makes it possible for me to put these things together and to talk about them out loud. So thank you. I'm gonna talk about sexism, gender identity, and prostitution. Trans advocacy and sex work advocacy are political movements rooted in sexual objectification. And let me say that these slides are from an article that'll be published soon, I hope. And my email is in the chat if you want to request a copy of this. It's not gonna be out for a while, but write me if you want a copy. The sex advocated by trans activists is declared to be inevitable, just like the sex advocated by sex work activists is also considered inevitable. The ideology of male supremacy undergirds both movements and male supremacy determines how we understand the kinds of sex that must be considered necessary and uncontested. Sex as desired by the class that dominates women is held by that class to be elemental, urgent, necessary, even if or even though it appears to require the repudiation of any claim women have to full human standing. Andrew Dworkin wrote that in the mid 80s and it was in Letters from a War Zone, a book that the US, no US publisher would print. The first edition came out in the UK and and um, after its remarkable success, some US publishers crept back and put out another edition of it. People are confused about the difference between the word sex and the word gender. Some use the two words interchangeably despite the fact that they have very different meanings. I've participated in several failed debates on sex and gender. For example, one person declared that the definitions of words in the dictionary 
did not apply to her use of words. How can we discuss sex and gender, I wondered, if we can't agree on the meaning of those words? The refusal to define words is a tactic that has frustrated many of us as we struggle to protect women's sex-based rights as they're dangerously eroded by the social and legal replacement of the word sex by the word gender. Idiosyncratic and woke language used by pimps and postmodernists block communication of theory and evidence regarding prostitution. Just as the words sex and gender have been blurred, so also the words prostitution and trafficking have often been deliberately blurred. There's disagreement regarding what exactly trafficking is because its definition varies so widely. The word pimping, on the other hand, is understood and opposed by most people. There are ideological parallels between the political movement promoting gender identity or trans rights and the political movement promoting prostitution as sex work. While both claim the lofty goal of freeing people from discrimination, the foundation of both movements is sexual objectification. And sexual objectification is the opposite of any kind of freedom. Gender identity exists because of sexual objectification. Socially defined femininity and masculinity are rooted in sexual objectification. When sexually objectified, a girl or a woman is defined by her sexual characteristics and made into a thing for others' sexual use. Sexual objectification enables an abuser to view another person as an object through a process of fragmentation and exploitation. Sexual objectification is at the root of sexual violence because objects have no feelings, even if great harm is perpetrated against them. Women are objectified via pimps transformation of them into profitable commodities. Women and girls of color are doubly objectified on the basis of both racism and sexism. Sex work activists like trans activists promote a sexually objectified performance of femininity. Advocates of gender ideology normalize the sex trade because prostitution validates their view of women as sex objects. Furthermore, prostitution allows trans women, that is men who self-identify as women, and trans men, women who self-identify as men, to pay for hormones and surgeries. Gender identity advocates ignore the harms of sexual objectification. Instead, men who identify as women seek out and desire sexual objectification, considering it to be proof that they're women. Over time, sexual objectification and commodified commodification are internalized. This takes a toll on self-esteem. A woman in strip club prostitution explained this eloquently. You start changing yourself to fit a fantasy role of what they think a woman should be. In the real world, these women don't exist. They, she's talking about men in a strip club, they stare at you with this starving hunger. It sucks you dry. You become this empty shell. They're not really looking at you. You're not you. You're not even there. Self-objectification causes people to value their physical appearance more than they value their body's ability to function in the world. The results are self-surveillance, body shame, 
and the belief that you control how you look if you try hard enough. Daniels and Zabrigan and a couple of other psychologists have been researching these uh, adverse psychological effects of self-objectification for years. The harmful effects of self-objectification go even deeper when disconnection and dissociation are encouraged by sex work and trans activists. Disembodiment, dissociation, and psychological fragmentation are common in prostitution and also common when women and men are encouraged to act on the feeling that they were born in the wrong body. The dissociation necessary to survive prostitution also occurs among people who assert that they have transed or changed their sex. Extreme body disconnectedness and somatic dissociation are valorized by social media. This has resulted in some horrific cases of body mutilation, such as that of a woman who had a fake penis made out of skin sliced from her thigh, and her photo was put on the cover of New York Magazine uh, in the last couple of years. Although similarities exist, the social and psychological factors affecting men who identify as women are quite different from the factors affecting women who identify as men. Women's discomfort with gender roles peaks at adolescence when, as Vaishnavi Sundar put it, women flee womanhood as it's culturally defined. A lesbian blogger wrote that her body dysphoria was accompanied by dissociative symptoms. At adolescence, as men began to leer at her, she felt vulnerable, objectified, exposed, and frightened. She blamed herself and her developing body for these threats from men in a sexist culture. She dissociated, that is, she psychologically disconnected herself from the part of herself that men visually assaulted her breasts. And she wrote, if I think about my breasts long enough, I feel like they are not mine. They are not me. They hurt me. They stop me doing things I want to. Obsession, dissociation, dysphoria can create the sensation that my body is not an integrated whole, but a collection of parts as if I could detach the bits I don't like, as if my breasts were somehow not me, but stuck on the front of me. I want them away. I wanna switch them out for something else. It's as if I was a robot, not a human. It's a short step from that feeling to hormones and surgeries. Men, who self-identify as women often use women in pornography as their role models. Trans porn is popular on pornography search engines. Multinational corporations such as MindGeek's Pornhub are capitalizing on trans porn's popularity by increasing productions and investments in trans porn. Genevieve Gluck has described the pornography-induced dysphoria that promotes extreme sexual objectification and the degradation of women via sissy porn or forced feminization porn. Men are forced to become women via wearing lingerie, makeup, sexual humiliation, and subordination by more dominant men in rituals that are akin to fraternity hazing rituals or boot camp humiliation. Rape and rape culture are celebrated by these men who self-identify as women. If, as Judith Herman said, rape is the signal crime of male supremacy, then trans women's 
that is men who self-ID as women. Fetishization of rape is the idealization of male supremacy. And of course, the ubiquity of rape in prostitution is ignored or erased. Political activism merges sex work is work with trans women are women. Gender identity activists promote decriminalized prostitution as an element of trans rights. A Brazilian man who self-identified as a woman was commended as a human rights activist despite a previous conviction for pimping. Academic activist Sophie Pezzuto is affiliated both with the Sex Worker Outreach Project, SWAP, and a gender agenda. Defining prostitution as a reasonable job for men who self-identify as women, trans activists assume that prostitution is a reasonable option for them. Even if men in prostitution who identify as trans women tell us that like women, they also prefer escape from prostitution. The political viewpoints of donors influence nonprofit organizations, universities, and governments. The gender identity movement and the sex work movement are supported by Bill Gates, who's worth $51 billion, and George Soros. Rich donors have a powerful impact on the public's understanding of prostitution and gender identity. Gates, in particular, has a grotesquely oversized influence on media reporting in the fields of public health, prostitution, and gender identity. Gates has donated millions to major media outlets, including NPR, PBS, ABC, BBC, Al Jazeera, The Daily Telegraph, The Financial Times, Univision, and The Guardian. The London Guardian was further incentivized by a $250,000 donation from the Soros Open Society Foundation to cover gender identity in news coverage that is, quote, favorable, quotable, and easily understood. Here's a new media spin in 2021. Gender identity is now folded into gender equality. The three largest foundations in the world, Gates, Soros, and Ford, have committed a total of $2,620,000,000 to advancing quote, gender identity and gender equality. So if you wonder why we have a hard time getting our theory and messages and evidence out, that's why. And here's another reason why. Gaslighting and Darvo. As Andrea Nobre said on this seminar a couple, a months, couple months ago, we can't fight sexism unless we can see sex. Why do intelligent people abandon logic and declare themselves committed to fictions? An understanding of gaslighting and DARVO in the trans advocacy and sex work advocacy movements might help explain this phenomenon. It also might help some of us feel a little less crazy as we deal with our friends, family, political allies, and politicians. Sex trade pimps and sex buyers use gaslighting to defend prostitution. Sure, she's exploited, but she earns really good money, doesn't she? In this example, the gaslighter minimizes the harms of prostitution by describing being raped and assaulted as exploited, and they misinform and confuse and silence the listener by suggesting that the payment of money diminishes the cruelty of prostitution. The tautological slogans, sex work is work and trans women are women, are examples of gaslighting. 
A UK video from Celebrity Big Brother shows a man who self-identifies as a woman, angrily demanding that a woman repeat after him, trans women are real women, trans women are real women. The lie that a man can turn into a woman is insistently repeated like brainwashing. The compliant listener in the video repeats the lie despite its irrationality. In an example of gender identity policy gaslighting, police in Scotland were instructed to log rapes as being perpetrated by a woman if the accused person insists he is a woman. In other words, if a sex offender with a penis says he's a woman, and if he's placed in a woman's jail, and if he rapes a woman in the jail, then the rape is logged as having been committed by a woman. In this way, the crime of rape is socially and statistically disappeared via record-keeping gaslighting. The result is that data about rape, a critical indicator of male violence against women, is fatally weakened. Referring to this absurdity in a way that reverses the mindfuck, J.K. Rowling tweeted, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, the penist individual who raped you is a woman. And thank you to Wolf for your recent lawsuits and your successes in uh, challenging the state of California who's putting large numbers of men who self-identify as women into women's jails, which is endangering them. And I'm aware this is happening all over the world. DARVO is a particularly nasty variant of gaslighting. It's a reaction by abusers in response to being held accountable for their behavior. The abuser may deny the behavior, explained Jennifer Fried, who started this theory, then attack the individual doing the confronting, then reverse the role of victim and offender so that the abuser assumes the victim role and turns the true victim or whistleblower into an alleged abuser. Both the targeted victim and bystanders can be stunned into confusion, apprehension, and silence. The cognitive distortions created by a DARVO abuser can cause entire cultures to become callous about the harms and betrayal of victimized groups. Sex work advocates manipulate people's perception by denying pimps and sex buyers violence. Instead, sex work activists accuse those of us who seek sex buyer accountability of making their lives more dangerous by arresting the abusers. Prostitution abolitionists, not sex buyers, are named as victimizers. Feminists who propose limits to men's rights to identify as women at the point where women's rights are jeopardized are accused of transphobia or even violence against trans women. In a DARVO climate, no amount of evidence is enough to prove the abuser's transgressions. Denial of the reality of sex by gender identity advocates is a DARVO maneuver that begins with science denialism and ends with vicious scapegoating of feminists who are gender identity skeptics. DARVO is harmful to the victim in that it traps her into feeling like she is the problem. Our liberal sisters who call themselves cis women or who use pronouns have been trapped by gender ideologists' DARVO maneuvers. Feminist opposition to the political movement for gender identity is aimed at protecting women's right to exist in society and in law. 
Once we understand the destructive nature of prostitution, feminists oppose prostitution because we support women's right to exist without prostitution in society and under the law. If we agree that women have the right to avoid sex-based stereotyping and subordination, then let's add a few words to the WDI declaration. Let's reaffirm women's right to live a life free from the exploitation of trafficking, prostitution, and pornography. Let's support the CEDAW articles that advocate for women's sex-based rights and our right not to be objectified and commodified. The danger of changing one law while compromising other laws that protect women's sex-based rights was illustrated in the US state of Wyoming when gender identity activists attempted to repeal a law that prohibited female genital mutilation, FGM. The law in Wyoming existed in order to protect women immigrants from FGM, it was a great law. Ironically, gender identity activists sought to repeal Wyoming's law prohibiting FGM because they felt the law would interfere with men's rights to their own genital mutilation called bottom surgery. Fortunately, the Wyoming repeal attempt failed and the law protecting women from FGM remains in effect. But in other instances, laws protecting women have been repealed or laws have been proposed that would remove women's sex-based protections. The equality amendment proposal would remove women's sex-based protection by classifying gender identity as a subtype of sex. This legal proposal puts forth ideas that sound reasonable but fail to protect women. Sex in this proposal becomes a recycling container where any person who says, I feel like a woman is declared to be legally the same as an adult human female. And this is some words from the equality uh, amendment proposal. Pregnancy, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity are grouped under sex because they're all facets of the unified but diverse system of inequality that privileges maleness and masculinity over femaleness and femininity. Can't argue with that. It certainly does privilege maleness and masculinity, but the solution is not to erase the category of women and adult human females. If anyone can legally declare himself to be a woman because he feels feminine, then women are legally eradicated, as Karadansky has pointed out in her recent book. An event happened in 2019 that deeply affected my understanding of sexism, violence, and the gender identity movement. I was sitting with a woman at a San Francisco playground. Her 11-year-old daughter ran to her mom crying. A boy at the playground had gotten mad at the girl and called her a trans bitch. The mother comforted her daughter and then stormed over to the boy's caregiver. 10 minutes later, she returned looking satisfied. What did you say, I asked. The mother proudly described how she educated the caregiver about transphobia and how, quote, at our school, we don't think trans people are bad. We welcome them and we're not prejudiced against trans people. So we don't use that word as an insult against them. After a pause, I asked, did you say anything to him about his son calling your daughter a bitch? She stared blankly at me. No, 
She had not mentioned his use of that word. Sitting there, my heart sank. She voiced concern only about the well-being of people who are born male, but feel, feel like they're female. Yet the word used all over the world to insult and degrade women and justify violence against women was not a concern for her. The boy's sexist epithet was not seen or challenged. The Facebook group Planting Peace wrote about an invasive slice of the pie. And they wrote, these are their words, this should be easy to understand how freedoms work. This person took his part, but it affected others negatively. He exercised his freedom, but with an injustice to others. Freedom can't be exercised just as every individual wants without looking at injustices to others. Justice disappears when you harm others. The pie slice is an example of bad exercise of individual freedom. So a longstanding feminist movement to abolish gender is complementary to the movement to abolish prostitution. Both political movements reject the sexual objectification that is at the heart of prostitution and gender identity. Thus, gender abolitionism and prostitution abolitionism go hand in hand. Could Melissa please reiterate the specific statistics she shared about the money uh, to the media and the sources? Women need this info to push back against people who get mad at us for using conservative media. I would recommend for those of us who are political activists that we track. You see where that's from, Kara? The Philanthropy News Digest. It's, it's, uh, you can subscribe to that. Any nonprofit can subscribe to that. And that's where that information came from. We look at it to see if there's some big donor that is going to provide uh, funding for some trafficking or, or prostitution research that we're going to do. And boom, this came up when I was scrolling through it. Uh, and, and given the rate of funding of these uh of the, these issues, gender identity, gender equality, as they call it, God knows what they mean by those words, but they're not never clear, of course. Um, but the but there was a report from the Philanthropy News Digest: the three largest foundations in the world, Gates, Soros, and the Ford Foundation, have jointly committed two billion. $620 million for the promotion of gender identity, gender equality. And if you want the specific URL of that, uh, please email me and I will give that to you so you can cite it. The good news is there's a, there were some devastating critiques from watchdog groups in the U.S. of the outsized influence of what money can buy in the way of governments, in the case of the United States. Money buys a large portion of our government and government policy. This is corporatism at its ominous, lethal worst. People like Gates, uh, for example, has for decades driven public health policy. Just recently in Sweden, the entire public health department of Karolinska University, we found out later, uh, Karolinska's public health department is entirely funded by Gates. So guess what happened when we approached them about funding a study on the adverse effects of pornography and prostitution on Swedish women's lives. Uh, hello, it's been nice meeting you, goodbye. You know, with a few hours conversation in between. 
make no mistake about it. Uh, it's not just the messaging to journals. It's the research that's the foundation of so-called science, right? Uh, the whole construction of reality, starting with the science, is controlled by corporate interests. And, and anybody who has an academic position knows this, knows how the funding drives all kinds of support in academia. And if you say the wrong thing, like these amazing women, like Raquel Rosario Sanchez or some other women in the UK, pardon me for not saying everyone's name, but Raquel's fight from a one down position as a graduate student was nothing short of heroic. And it's not over yet, but that's what money does in my opinion. So thank you for the question and, and write me if you want more details on the sources. We're going now to uh, our next speaker, also from the United States. We're going to listen T's presentation. She is a founder and national organizer of Lesbians United, a lesbian-only organization based in the US. Lesbians United advocates for the health and well-being of lesbians and girls who may grow up to be lesbians. Uh, her uh, presentation is called Playing Offense with Pro-Lesbian Language. Uh, over to you, T. So Lesbians United recently released a messaging guide for women's and gay rights activists, um, showing you uh, how to speak more clearly about transgenderism and um, how to speak more effectively. Um, and so I'd like to present on messaging. I'm sure a lot of you have noticed that our side of the conversation has been losing the messaging fight for a long time. Um, our opponents have great PR and so far that's been their greatest strength and messaging has been our greatest weakness. And so I'd like to talk about how um, women's and gay rights activists are currently being forced to play defense um, and how we can turn the tide, start playing offense and start controlling the narrative. Um, and I should note that this applies to every level from websites, organizational messaging, um, if you're doing an interview, legal testimony, or even if you're just hanging out on social media. Um, and this mostly applies to uh, speaking to people who consider this as liberal and people who are kind of in the cult of um, transgenderism um, because the conservatives are already on our side on this particular issue. Um, so let's talk about what it means to be playing defense, what's currently happening, um, and then we'll talk about how to change that and start playing offense. Um, so when you're playing on the defense, um, you're answering the other side's questions and you're defending yourself against accusation. Um, so for example, people might say things like, well, it's not homophobic to speak against transgenderism, or you might say, I'm not transphobic. Um, and uh, this puts us in the position of always um, answering, always defending, and we become easily distracted. Um, we go off message, um, we get away from our talking points and into our opponent's territory, and we talk about what they want to talk about rather than what we want to talk about. Um, another thing that we do a lot um, is define ourselves in the negative. Um, so we end up saying things like, I'm gender critical, hashtag team turf. Um, and you'll note that um, gender critical contains one nonsense word, gender, and one negative word, critical. Um, and then uh, TERF, right, contains the word exclusionary um, as part of the acronym. So that's a very negative sounding statement there. It's not gonna get people to listen to you if they don't already agree with you. Um, all right, we also come off as negative um, when we're constantly apologizing and justifying ourselves. Um, when we uh, take the middle road, we try to be nice, um, and we write long justifications of our arguments. Um, so things like saying, you know, I'm not transphobic or saying I'm trying to protect trans kids from medical harm, uh, apologizing for coming off too strong, apologizing for seeming radical, um, things like this, um, we need to stop doing. Um, related to that, we also allow a lot of nuances and gray areas into our arguments. Um, so we say things like, well, okay, not all the trans women are dangerous, just the AGPs. Um, we say, well, you know, if they get a gender recognition search, uh, certificate, they can come in. Um, or they say, well, the ones who are, you know, the homosexual transsexuals are okay. Um, or we say, maybe we could create a third space. Um, so taking these kind of middle of the road stances. Um, when we justify ourselves and we become overly nuanced, we also become overly wordy. 
and we end up writing Twitter dissertations that no one is going to read. Um, and it's sort of a waste of time. Um, and the last point here on the defense side is that we often end up using our, opponent, uh, our opponent's jargon, which contributes to the widespread gaslighting and confuses our message. Um, and we'll talk a lot more about specific language later. Um, but now let's talk about how to turn all of this around and start playing offense. So instead of constantly answering questions and defending ourselves against accusations, we can ask questions and make accusations of our own. Um, this enables us to control the conversation. So we can say things like, why are you letting people with penises tell you what lesbians are? That's a very good question, right? That's really homophobic of you. Um, we can say things like, do you believe that exclusive same-sex attraction is immoral, right? Wow, you sound just like the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, so making accusations, right, puts your opponent on the defensive. And it allows you to drive the conversation. And when you drive the conversation, you get to stay on message. Um, we get to stick to our talking points and we return to them when the conversation strays. Um, and this is kind of like um, the core of uh, the idea of advertising, right? Repetition, right? Repetition, repetition, repetition. If you want people to remember what you're selling, in this case, an idea, because all activists are selling an idea, um, you need to repeat it over and over. And so you need to stay on message. Um, instead of defining ourselves in the negative, we need to start defining ourselves positively. Um, we create positive associations with us in people's minds, which makes them more likely to listen to us. Um, we get to direct the conversation and seem harder to attack. So instead of calling yourself a turf or gender critical, you can just say, I'm for gay rights. If you're pro-gay, your opponent has to prove that they're not anti-gay before they get to speak against you, right? Um, you put them in the position of defending themselves against an implied accusation of homophobia. Um, and when we do this consistently and insistently, um, we force our opponents to back down. Your goal when making a political argument against another person should be to make your opponent back down or melt down. If they back down, you win. If they melt down, they look crazy, you look reasonable, and you win. Um, so we need to get used to saying things like this and insisting upon them. You're being homophobic, stop lying. Um, another thing that we can do um, is to state our arguments very clearly. So um, when we make really nuanced arguments, we often come across as kind of wishy-washy. Um, if we state our uh, arguments in clearer terms, one, they're easier for people to understand, two, they're easier for people to remember, um, and three, you look like you really know what you believe in, um, which matters. Um, we should also keep our arguments short and simple. So again, um, the more you can repeat it, uh, the more people will remember it. So short is repeatable. Um, and if you think about what our opponents are doing, we can kind of take a page from their book here because they say things like trans women are women, which sounds very clear and simple, um, even though it's actually a very complicated and nonsensical statement, it sounds very clear and simple um, and it's short and it gets repeated over and over. So it ends up beating our arguments even when our arguments are true. Um, and while we're talking about short and simple, we also need to talk about using accurate language um, instead of using the unrealistic jargon that our opponents have coined to confuse everybody. Our opposition is actively trying to make it impossible to speak out about women's and gay issues. And this is creating huge problems for lesbians in terms of both our legal rights and defending our personal boundaries and the boundaries of our community. Um, when we use the opposition's language, three things happen. One, we contribute to mass confusion um, and thus the erosion of legal rights. Um, two, we make ourselves look bad, like we're trying to talk on both sides of the issue, like we actually believe in nonsense concepts like transgender, um, and like we don't really know what we're talking about. Um, and three, we confuse and gaslight ourselves, because how you speak influences how you think, and vice versa. Um, so it's time to stop complying with the opposition's jargon. And I'd like to talk about replacing some of the terms coined by our opposition with more lesbian inclusive language. And um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll show a few on the screen, but I want you to know that there are a lot more in our messaging guide, um, which you can find through our website. And I will put a link to that in the YouTube description. Women's and gay rights activists often get conned into saying things like trans women. Um, we say things like trans women aren't women, which is a confusing and seemingly self-contradictory statement because it contains the phrase women aren't women and people, really, people who aren't really up on the issue don't really know what you mean, right? Um, so instead of saying trans women, we can just call them what they are, which is men. Um, we've also coined this term trans-identified males to try to talk like middle ground of the issue, right? 
Um, we're affirming the nonsensical ideas of trans and identity. And we're also implying that men who lie about their sex are somehow actually different from other men. They're not men, they're males, they're somehow identified. Um, instead of this, we can call them what they really are, which is men who lie about their sex. Um, another term we use, trans rights activists. Um, what exactly is a trans right? I would like to know. Um, these people are not trans. They're not fighting for any rights. They're actually fighting to take rights away from women, gay people, and parents. Um, and so instead of calling them this very positive sounding term, we can call them anti-lesbian activists, anti-woman, anti-gay, whatever you want to call them, but this is what they are, right? They're fundamentally um, against other people's rights, and we need to call them that. Um, this is one, uh, the LGBT lobby. Uh, we've seen a lot of this from uh, women's rights activists, particularly. We'll talk about the LGBT lobby and the harm that they're doing to women's rights. Um, Lesbians United really wants you to stop using the term LGBT, which is at the heart of confusion uh, and also at the heart of the opposition's propaganda. Um, it links uh, lesbians, gay men, and bisexual people to the concepts of transgenderism. Um, and it really paints lesbians in a bad light as if we're fighting against our own rights, as if we're fighting against women's rights, as if we're fighting against the safeguarding of children. Um, so instead of talking about the LGBT lobby, which is an untrue concept, um, we can talk about the anti-lesbian lobby, which again, paints our opponents in the negative, by implication paints us in the positive, uh, and also makes it very clear that transgenderism uh, is not for or about lesbians at all. Um, all right, uh, this is one term that radical feminists in particular really like to use, gender. Um, radical feminists like to talk about gender as a social construct. Um, the term gender was coined by John Money, who was a pedophilic doctor. Um, and it's been used by a lot of people in a lot of ways, um, particularly by transgenderists uh, in a positive context. Um, and so in the public perception, gender is a positive thing. Um, and uh, so it really confuses the conversation when we use it at all. Um, so instead of talking about gender, I think what people usually mean on our side when they talk about gender is stereotypes. So let's just say what we mean, which is stereotypes of men. Um, and I'd like to talk about replacing the word gender in a couple of other common phrases as well. So gender critical, again, uh, negative word plus nonsense word equals very confusing epithet. Um, so instead of this, we can just say that we're pro-lesbian. Um, and then gender dysphoria um, not only contains the word gender, but it also reinforces a bogus psychiatric diagnosis that's targeting lesbians for medicalization. So instead of using gender dysphoria and kind of reifying the psychological establishment's um, lies, we can say distress over biological sex. It's, it is an important concept that needs to be spoken about. Um, I'm not denying that it exists, um, but uh, the way that we speak about it needs to change um, because currently we are um, reifying the, the DSM entry for gender dysphoria, which is just pure homophobia and um, medicalization. Um, in the same vein, uh, when we talk about transition, we're reinforcing lies that the medical establishment is telling, right? The lie that you can actually transition from one sex to another, um, the lie that these medical procedures are in any way necessary or safe. Um, so instead of this, we can talk about medical abuse, we can talk about medical experimentation, um, we can talk about cosmetic surgery and so on. Um, and when we can, we talk about specific procedures in accurate terms. So instead of saying something like top surgery, which is a euphemism that is designed to cover up a horrific abuse, um, we can say cosmetic mastectomy, because that's what that is. Um, this will be the last one that I cover here, um, but again, there are more on our website in the guide. Um, so this is another term that we're seeing a lot of these days, um, banning conversion therapy. Um, as a gay person, when I see the word conversion therapy, I immediately think, oh, that's a bad thing. Um, that shouldn't be happening. And so when I see banning conversion therapy, to me that reads as a very positive phrase, right? Um, what's actually happening in these so-called conversion therapy bills is that they're mandating conversion therapy. Um, they're trying to outlaw um, giving talk therapy to people who are distressed over their biological sex and make it mandatory to put them through medical abuse instead. So instead of saying banning conversion therapy, we can say mandating conversion therapy. We can also say denying lesbians access to healthcare because that's what those bills effectively do.
Um, so for the rest of this presentation, I'll be talking about how we can put all of this together and create narratives. Um, and this is about the narratives that we tell other people and also the narratives that we tell ourselves. Um, there are several of these in the messaging guide, um, but I'll go over the basic principles and then I'll go over one specific narrative. So a pro-lesbian narrative explains the tangible effects of a policy or social norm on women or gay people or both. Uh, accurately describes people and events, meaning it describes men as men, it describes sexual harassment as sexual harassment, and so on. Um, it uses positive language to describe the pro-lesbian viewpoint, that's our viewpoint, and it uses negative language to describe anti-lesbian activists. So I'll read out this um, sample narrative. This narrative focuses on something positive, which is, uh, or at least positive to leftists, which is destigmatizing homosexuality. But you'll see that this is a narrative that you can use to argue for single sex prisons and accurate crime reporting. Um, so the narrative is like all women, lesbians are extremely unlikely to commit violent or sexual crimes, but our society often records heterosexual men's sex crimes as lesbian crimes. This wrongfully increases stigma against lesbians by blaming them for crimes committed by men. We can help to destigmatize lesbians by creating a new system that records crimes based on sex. If we make accurate recording a priority, we can ensure that the lesbian community is not blamed for men's crimes. We can build a more inclusive society, one where lesbians can participate fully in public life, free from discrimination and homophobia. So you can see that this narrative hits all the points. Um, it explains the effects of the current policy on lesbians, which is um, increasing stigma against us. Um, it describes heterosexual men as heterosexual men, not as trans women or as trans identified males. Um, and if you look at where the positive language in this narrative is, uh, it's on our side. All of the underlined words here, destigmatized, accurate, accurate reporting, inclusivity, freedom, full participation, these are all things that are considered positive on the left, which again is the side that we need to convince on this issue. Um, I also want to highlight in particular the term new system. Um, the so-called progressives who are pushing um, transgenderism and homophobia um, like to present themselves as being the champions of something new. Um, the old way is bad, the new way is better. That's how people who consider themselves progressive think. And so when we talk about the current system being bad and we want a new system, right, we look progressive. Um, if we were to talk about going back to the old system, we look reactionary. And so we talk about a new system instead. Um, and then if we look at the negative language here, um, it's all attached to our opposition. So this argument is saying we're against stigma, we're against blaming lesbians, and if you disagree with us, you are discriminatory and homophobic. Um, and that's sort of how we put all that together. Um, thank you for listening. And again, you can find our messaging guide on the resources page of our website. Um, and if you're watching this on YouTube, there should be a link in the description. What do you do in response to men being presented by the White House as lesbians, just as just happened with Charles Clymer being on a panel for lesbians? What are your thoughts on that? Obviously, that makes me pretty angry. <laughs> makes all of, uh, all of us at Lesbians United pretty angry. Um, I, I guess what we do in response to people in the White House doing things we don't like is we vote them out. Um, and I think this goes back to sort of the idea of working on our public relations and our public messaging. Um, if you want people to vote out the politicians who are currently in, then you need to change their minds about the issues and get them to understand how important that it is that they vote differently. Um, and so I think uh, my my emotional response to that is anger, but my, my actual response to it is to keep doing what we're doing and keep, um, you know, um, anybody who's able to give interviews, um, get a TV spot, you know, um, make sure that you're hitting the messaging guidelines that we've set forth. Um, and even if, you know, people who are just on social media can help out, right? You can, you can convince other people that way. Uh, you can talk to your friends in private to, to convince them, um, to tell them how important it is that um, lesbians not be treated the way that we're being treated. Um, and to try to make people understand what's going on and try to make them angry about it.